as you grow, you learn to not reinvent the wheel because those languages are already extremely advanced, extremely complex, and you're just going to do a one more poor implementation of something that already exists. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm joined today by Ruben Fitzel, who is the creator or author of Windmill. Windmill's an open source workflow engine. You could also call it a developer environment. Windmill's kind of arrived on the scene, at least for me, kind of out of nowhere and grown to quite a popular thing. 5,000 GitHub stars, a big Discord community. Ruben, congrats on all the progress and welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So. Let's quickly describe what this thing is. I called it a workflow engine. So I think it's you can see it as an onion of layers. And so it's a developer platform that embeds a workflow engine. And so one of the questions we have is why not reuse a workflow engine? Why reinvent it from scratch? And the reason is that sometimes when you integrate things vertically, you can get better performance. The abstraction make better sense. They integrate better with what we have. And so there are already good solutions for integrating with the existing workflow engine. So I'm thinking about Prefect, Daxter, like you can also see Airflow or like Temporal as workflow engine. And we could have done just like a layer on top, but then we would have missed all of the good things that actually make Windmill what it is, which is like extremely low performance, extremely flexible, the ability to like run code as it is, so arbitrary scripts. And we have like some abstraction around what is a main function. And the main function is all you need to basically run one of the step of Windmill, which is very different from some of the other abstraction used by the other workflow engine. For instance, Daxter, Airflow, uh, Prefect, they're all based in Python. And so it all makes sense if it's like a unified code base, which is all Python. But what if you have like a mix of like Bash script, TypeScript, Python that you like to mix together? This is where basically making some different choice are essential. And so we had to reinvent from scratch. And in the end, it took a while, but the results speak for themselves. So I'm pretty glad we went this route. Got it. And so I ma- imagine a lot of people adopt you for a workflow problem. And then they enjoy the developer platform and even use you in kind of non-workflow scenarios? Yes, I think workflow in general is like a domain that is still largely unexplored. So of course, like senior engineers know about it and they already use great solution about it. But I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with it and they basically reinvent it for their own problem or like uh, basically patch it with like uh, some pub sub queues and some microservices there and there. And so everyone is reinventing workflows and so, so are we. And so we're trying to like build a standard, right? And so maybe it's one more standard. But the benefit here is that a lot of like existing workflow engine kind of like force you to adopt their, I think sometimes convoluted API. We're trying to fit into the existing way people write code and just basically to build a workflow abstraction on top of it. So. We, we really see it as an orchestration of like different scripts or different functions, the same one you would write if you were writing your own backend. And it's exactly the same code. There is nothing that is like basically specific to us. And like the code is code that you can port. If you w- were to move out of Windmill, you can just port it and include it in your microservice. So what do we provide on top of like the icing building in from, from scratch? Well, just doing some piping between the steps is not so easy because you basically have to say, well, I'm going to like do a sequence of steps one after the other. And then each step is going to have to go to completion. And then 
uh, once they go to completion, they have to take the result as input. But then maybe if you do a complex DAG, you're not just taking all the previous outputs as input. So now you, you, you need to separate the order of execution from the DAG that represent the, the input flow. And then now you want to do some more complex things, like say, I want to have my workflow sleep or suspend for a certain amount of time before I reactivate it. And I don't want to do that by doing an active wait. And you want to do some branching and like, basically there's a, a bit of like, yes, you, you could do that yourself, but then as soon as kind of like the complexity of the workflow grow, then you're kind of like glad that someone built an abstraction that you can just reuse. The objective with what we do is to do it in a way that doesn't force you to change the way you would have written the code otherwise. So it, it feels very natural for a software engineer to basically use Windmill and it, they don't have to change the way they write code. They can just use our local builder to basically orchestrate everything. And so it feels very natural for someone with a software engineering background. Got it. And you're right. I think we've seen people in any company of any meaningful size begin to develop their own workflow engine if they don't aren't given one because of the needs you described. And, and so there's a, a long history of folks with homegrown workflow engines. Maybe you could speak a little bit to the developer platform. So first, I think there is the idea of like, this is a platform so that you can expose workflows and scripts to the rest of the organization. So we take care of like basically building a front end for each of those flows and even like for the individual scripts. So we do that by parsing the main function, the parameters, extracting what are the kind of input that it needs. And so like building the basic form that would represent the inputs of that script. We do the same thing for flows where we know the shape of that particular script, so we know how we need to chain it inside the flow. So we take care of basically having this platform that you can expose to the less technical people of your organization, not as a workflow engine, but as a developer portal or like an internal portal. The other thing is that you can centralize your permissions. So groups, granular permissioning, read, write, basically people are in different groups. They, they should have different access and not a uniform access like you have in most workflow engine where they just basically expect that as soon as they get a job, they just have to process it. Tied to the question of like permission, there is a question of like secrets. How do you handle sensitive values? And then what we did on top of all of that is that we built a UI builder that is very similar to something like Retool, where you can basically drag and drop things. One difference is that it's not just another Retool. We made it with a software engineer or backend software engineer in mind, in the sense of like, you do want to expose quickly what you've done as workflows or as scripts, but without basically having to like spend too much time building front end but you want kind of like to be able to leverage the full power of your scripts. And so the idea is like in most cases, in five minutes, you can build a very complex dashboards or something that shows a lot of data without it being a front-end engineer. I think that's a bit different from a tool like Retool where basically the idea is like, even if you're like a front-end engineer, you'd like to basically build a very complex dashboard where you can customize everything. And so it looks very similar to what you would have written with code but without the need for code. We're, we're not trying to do that. We really emphasize productivity. And the goal is that like, as a backend software engineer, you can really like build your uh, dashboard that is very powerful in really, really quickly and make it basically also very easy to maintain. We published or open sourced a, a enterprise chatbot recently here at Scale Venture Partners. And originally we were storing things in spreadsheets and, and in S3 and we had to have permissions. We kind of had our own little scripts for managing permissions to both of those. We would get authentication tokens and stash them places. And then we tried out Windmill and realized that like all that permission management to third-party sources is kind of managed for us. There's a bit of a life cycle around those secrets. So I, th I think you've kind of, you've addressed the problems that people typically run into 
at least from our experience. My experience is that people end up reinventing the wheel every time, yeah. which I, th I think is, is, is almost necessary because it's really hard to build a generic solution, especially if you kind of like build it in a very opinionated fashion. So I think what's cool with like uh, engineering background is that you can try to build non-opinionated uh, solutions that basically are just tools that people can use the way they want. And so in many ways, the way to do that is to basically take things to their essence and not try to build too much. So we, we provide a lot of a, a minimal solution for everything with a very open API, and then you can build a lot of it and uh, yourself. And that's because everything is basically either a resource or a script, and a script is code, and we are not inventing programming language. They already exist, we just run them. And so those programming languages are extremely flexible, and once you are able to, in those scripts, to fetch the resources that are permissioned, then you basically are free to reinvent your own way of like thinking about permissions, like secrets and everything. So we don't want to impose necessarily one way to do things. Everyone has their preferred way to do things. We just want to give you the most basic tools so that you don't end up reinventing them again and again. Talk to us about how you got to this solution, Ruben. Maybe a little bit of your background, what led you to this place, and then we'll, we'll get into more of the nuts and bolts of it. So I did my studies in LDPFL in Switzerland, uh, where I was working in the Scala lab, and a lot of my background is compiler-related. I then went to Stanford to do research on compilers. We were doing Scala to hardware synthesis, so how to get from a very slow language to hardware acceleration, which is as fast as you can get. And then I worked for Palantir in the, uh, as a DevTool lead. And there I kind of like learned how the industry actually work and how people actually use software, both as a tech company and as a producer of software for other companies. And then I worked for a startup where I learned uh, the, the, the woos and the troubles of like being a startup. And then I learned a lot of things in each place. I think as a my compiler background really gave me a taste for uh, designing API languages and also a taste for not reinventing languages. So I think a lot of the the first thing you do when you like uh, learn about compilers is that you build your own DSL, you build your own compiler because it seems like yeah now I have the, all this power. And I think as you grow, you learn to not reinvent the wheel because those languages are have already extremely advanced, extremely uh, complex, and you're just gonna do a one more language that is going to be a poor implementation of something that already exists. So I think a lot of like my intuition for basically trying to wrap existing language instead of like writing our own DSL come from there. In the dev tool at Palantir, I basically are like even just in at Palantir, I learned the strengths of like building a platform. So Palantir does a product that's called Foundry and a lot of its strengths is that it is really like a platform in which people can spend their whole journey as an analyst. Uh, it's, it's, it's more geared toward a really large enterprise and big data and your journey as a uh, data, like how to do ontology and how to treat data inside big orgs. But the, the, the cool thing about it is that basically it's very generic. It does a lot of things. And then every member of the company can use it in different ways and can get value out of it. It's not just the engineering team that has a tool somewhere that no one understands how it works, no one can interact with, and you just assume that it works. It's the whole company that leverage it. And then even non-technical people or like semi-technical people, when they are able to contribute, they, they, are, they can like bring a lot of value to the stack that when we kind of like just try to isolate everything miss. And so like the idea of like building a platform and the strengths of building a platform I really got from there. And I also saw the need for a tool like Windmill at Palantir. So I figured, well, later on when I was like, is this a need? Is this already done? 
I had the intuition that if it wasn't solved for parliamentarians, then there wasn't that many tools out there that were doing this. And then in the startup, kind of the same, I was so I was trying to solve a lot of problems quickly. And then being a software engineer, I wanted to write them with code. And I realized that writing them with code took way too much time. So you have to like deploy them on AWS Lambda or Cloudflare Workers. If you want to do the right thing and you want to, as an engineer, and do everything with code, it takes a lot of time. But if you want to do kind of like the quick and dirty thing, then we don't have the tools available today because it's going to be a lot of like no code, super rigid tools that you know you're going to outgrow and you know are not like a scalable solutions. So I, I wanted to build this developer platform that you could quickly iterate on, but that you could use for production later that you would never outgrow. And so it needed a few things. You needed to have the right abstraction, so code. It needed to be extremely performance oriented because as developers, there is nothing more than you hate than making a choice that you know are, you're going to basically outgrow because it's so slow. And also as a the developer experience is really, really related to like speed and performance. A tool that is fast feels great as, an, as a developer. And yeah, trying to not be too opinionated to really make like a developer platform that is not trying to reinvent or like to basically impose what it thought was the best way to do things, but just give you a way to quickly deploy code to run them as workflows to permissions and then to build quick UI on, on it. And then basically the ultimate tool in a way, and then let software engineers do what they want out of it. Awesome. I wanted to talk about two other things. One is you live in Europe. You've been to the U.S. for Stanford and for YC, I assume. There's others from Europe that we've talked to. I'm curious how you see like the, the value of being in the U.S. versus being in Europe and approaches to kind of building an open source community independent of that. I feel like the injuring mindset of being European leans more toward building infra or like, uh, I'll say, deep tech or to, for some definition of deep tech, where basically you really care about the injuring and not enough about the... I'll say business aspects of things and or like the marketability of things or the way to scale them accordingly. So from that, I really got a taste for like the hard engineering and I'm really glad I got that education. But then when I went to the US, I realized how clueless I was about many things about you know how you actually scale a business, uh, what it is to do sales. And I realized there was a reason America was ahead in a lot of like places is like, you guys are absolutely the best at like, yeah, sales business, like uh, put, like capital allocation. I think there is kind of like you dream big and you see, you see potential in things. I think a lot of Europeans like uh, think about what's going to fail. Like a lot of the Americans think about what's going to what could work. And so there was like this idea of like, well, it's cool to want to build a very complex stuff. But the US gave me the ambition to actually make it a business and to actually like think it could grow a large community out of it. And yeah, like the rest is like basically what you learn at YC, like how to build a nice product, uh, how to iterate quickly. And there is a bit of tension between kind of like doing infra and open source and kind of like the mantra of YC, uh, which is like to build things fast. But I, I think you can combine both in a way. And like today is probably the nicest period to build open source because people are getting really used to open source. There's a lot of tools available. There's a lot of technology around. I, I mean, Windmill is, is very large, but it lays on the shoulder of giants. So basically, a lot of like the AC transactionality is provided by Postgres. Uh, for the front end, we use Svelte, which is a very cool framework that allows you to iterate quickly. Uh, we use Rust. We use like Tokyo. So there's a lot of like those things that maybe didn't exist three years ago and like allow you to like really quickly build these innovating solutions quickly. 
So it, it's really a cool time to to build stuff, I think. Yeah, certainly what you're doing is is working. So I can imagine the the combination of your past experiences as well as geography and, and work-related have served you well. Earlier, as we were warming up, Ruben, before we started recording, you mentioned there were some really interesting kind of technical details, things that you had to, to figure out in order to, to solve this problem in the right way. Maybe you could go into some of those for us. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's two main ones, which is one, which is like container, not containers. The CNF, Container and Native Foundations, and a lot of like framework today, they rely on containers as the unit of like abstraction for executing arbitrary logic. It has one drawback, which is like building a container takes time. So you actually like, when you want to quickly iterate, you're losing a lot and, and actually like building a framework that is fast is impossible when it's like, you always have to build a container first. The second thing is like, well, if you want to be able to deploy many scripts, many different workflows, then you need to be able to store those heavy containers in storage. So Lambda, for instance, what it does is that it package all your dependencies in S3, then when it wants to run your micro VM or your endpoints, it's like that pull them from S3, which works fine if you have a lot of storage. But basically in a case where you want to be able to like on a small setup, have like thousands of endpoints that would not scale. So that's one what choice we basically did. The second was around essentially like building long running processes or running long running processes or not. So what we do in Windmill is that we basically only store the code source. We don't store the zip of the dependencies or anything. And we store a log file, which that code source. And so at runtime, when we basically pull the job, we pull the source code and the log file. And then we need to basically technically reinstall the dependencies and then run the code source. That would be very, very slow if we were only doing that. So now we did a lot of engineering so that basically we cache the dependencies and we create virtual environment on the fly. And so we do a lot of things so that it is instant. And in no way, we're basically doing an alternative approach to containers where we can mutualize a lot of like the already shared dependencies. And we can do that because our basically domain is not as large as containers, containers can run literally anything. We're only running scripts in Python, Go, Bash, uh, TypeScript. So our domain is more constrained. And so now the only thing we have to really kind of like care about is how to handle very well the dependencies in those languages. And so by constraining the problem, we can like come up with an alternative solutions to containers. The second thing that I mentioned, which is like running long process or not, Running long, long running process, uh, which is what basically Temporal or Lambda does, which is when they get a request for the first time, they need to boot a macro VM and then they need to boot an HTTP server. And then they basically send for each request, they send it to the HTTP server. Once the HTTP server is hot, it's going to be extremely performant, which is why Lambda and some, o- like, uh, some other uh, framework making that choice scale very well. The problem is that they suffer from cold start, which means that, well, actually, there's a lot of ceremony to do all of this. So the trade-off in most of those cases is like you optimize for scale and you optimize for throughput, not for latency. So a lot of like problem in, in small startup or companies is like not uh, something that you want to scale to a million requests a second. They're more of the nature of like once every five minutes at most. And so trying to fit cram everything into one solution, even though it's like it's a very elegant one, is not necessarily the right one depending on your problem. So 
we do that the same way I explained that we basically run the scripts there. We don't actually run, like we don't spawn a container, we don't spawn uh, an HTTP server. We just basically spawn a fork that is, is going to execute your scripts there, which allow us to have the lowest latency across all of the other engines. So if you were to, from like a cold infra, run a workflow from scratch, we are going to be faster than any other. So um, yeah, it, it works that one aspect. The second aspect is because we run the scripts bare, you don't have necessarily um, a lot of like the constraints you have with container where you cannot access memory or you cannot access GPU acceleration. Like the way we run scripts, they are have access to your whole node. And then if you want to do re resource isolation on top of it, you basically use Kubernetes to do that, where you say like each worker is going to be dedicated that amount of resources. So it's a lot easier to basically build a large scale infra on top of that, because we we don't ourselves are built on top of the container abstraction. Our workers are containers, but they don't run containers. They run scripts bare. Interesting. You're making more sense. As earlier in the show, you talked about how by combining these into a single platform, you're able to make some design decisions that benefit this kind of narrow set of use cases. And you know what what you're doing with containers or non-containers makes a lot of sense. I think some like basically um, back of the uh, napkins calculation uh, can show that basically a single worker, so a single container on a very tiny EC2 instance can run uh, around 14 million scripts in a month. And, and so 14 million scripts is a lot. And that's the assumption is basically that every script is going to take 100 milliseconds. There is a lot of companies that could be like the whole infra could be served by a single worker and they don't realize it because basically they've built all of this abstraction for large scale and everything. And so I think there's a lot of counterintuitive math that people don't realize that maybe they don't need uh, like this Cassandra cluster, maybe they don't need this Kafka cluster. Their problem is actually smaller than they think. And this is like very in line with a lot of like movement today, which like DuckDB, for instance, made by the creator of BigQuery, where basically you realize that you don't need BigQuery in most cases, like 99.9% .9 of the workflows could fit in memory. Uh, it's kind of the same for us. In most cases, you don't need sharding, you don't need Spark to do ETL. You just need to have like one node that execute your whole workflow. So there's a lot of those things that, that are might seem counterintuitive, but that hardware today is extremely fast and one node can do a lot. And it's sufficient to basically be able to like have an infra of like 10 to 20 nodes to be able to like run really, really large scale compute. Another aspect of Windmill that I don't think most people from the outside appreciate is when I dig into reviews on Hacker News or in Discord, people talk about Windmill, they talk about Ruben's incredible customer service support that he seems to be everywhere. What's your approach been for kind of supporting Windmill and new users and how do you sleep at night, I guess? Um so basically, uh, we were or we are, but we we mostly done on the building phase for a long time. Building phase mean we code, and meaning that I'm behind my laptop most of the time writing code. So Discord is never really far away. I think there is the aspect of like we're going very fast. So sometimes there's some bug that must have slipped through. The fact that some people from the community will do bug report is doing us an enormous favor service because digging bugs is a lot harder than solving them. So having by having good like bug report, we want to reward that kind of behavior by being extremely fast. And also, I mean, I would be very frustrated with like using a software that is uh, buggy. So there's a kind of like a feeling of pride that you you do want to solve that as fast as possible. So it feels very natural. Like it's it's the one thing that you want to do, which is like 
someone made the effort of like telling you about an issue or like giving you feedback, just treat it immediately. It's really easy to do at small scale, right? People can just like send me a message on Discord immediately. And then I can just, depending on the nature of the of the feedback or the issue, I can drop whatever I'm doing and fix it and then come back to it. Makes sense. Tell us about the future of Windmill. So today, or, or, or actually maybe to capture the current state, um, Windmill's an open source project. There is kind of a cloud offering, right? If I want to um, execute in a SaaS style. Where does Windmill go from here? So I think Windmill is a lot more generous uh, than any of their other comparable. So it's like, not only it's open source, we also have like SSO included. We Most of the, I'll say, enterprise features are actually in the open source edition. So uh, the, the the strategy is really basically to, to get, to grow the adoptions to be deployed everywhere. And most people will probably not need the enterprise edition. Uh, but we think at large scale for enterprise that are really going to derive a lot of value out of it, they're going to want to have this connection with us. They're going to want to have support. They're going to want to have this like one plugin that makes them a bit faster at really large scale. So the future is really building the best tool out there so that people love it, have it deployed everywhere. And then eventually we're also going to make a bit of money because uh, if we only capture 1% of the value we create, but create billions of value, then at some point we're going to be able to uh, make it a viable business. So right now, it's we have clients, we have customers, we're a really lean team. We we have like we are in no financial trouble, and that's really kind of like give us like the ability to like be very ambitious and not trying to just do like short term strategies where you need to monetize everything. Uh, what we're trying to optimize is right now is like customer satisfaction, making sense as a wall as a platform. I, th- I think building a platform is really, really hard and there's a lot of essays ar- around it because it has to be extremely consistent. And being consistent is one of the hardest things because you always want to do that one feature, but then that one feature will go against the rest of the platform. So it's a lot of those choices to make right, right now. And we were really, really lucky to have really good investors that gave us the time to basically uh, think uh, thoroughly to those problems without having to like rush uh, through any to like anything, and so that we were able to build really solid foundations. Now that we have those really solid foundations, and we can think about the next stage uh, for us, which is uh, now to get it into the hands of like not only startups but also larger companies, which I believe could benefit enormously from using Windmill. One of my favorite parts of doing these interviews is I find that often I've captured people in what amounts to their life's work. Um, and it feels like, Ruben, you know, a lot of things have led to this and, and you're pouring your full kind of passion into it. Uh, and, and we're all the beneficiaries. So thank you. No, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. You can subscribe to the podcast and check out our community Slack and newsletter at contributor.fyi. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.